For those of you who might not know, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And so while my skin has gotten quite thin from being in Georgia for 10 years, it's still a little cold. But when we lived in Wichita, I have this memory of the first house that my parents actually bought, the first house that was ours. Had a huge backyard, or what we thought was a huge backyard at the time. We were quite small. It backed up to this large field that had several horses. And we were tucked back into a neighborhood, and so the street became our playground where we would play football and especially basketball. But one thing I remember about when we moved in was how much stuff the previous owners left behind. There were shelves in our garage that, although not very deep, extended from floor all the way up to the top of the garage, and box after box had been left behind. The previous owners apparently didn't think that those things were worthy to be brought on their new adventure. My personal favorite item in that treasure trove of junk was an old bayonet. Yeah. I look back and have so many questions about the people who lived there. Who in the world needs a bayonet in their garage? But having recently moved myself, I have a little more grace for those previous owners than I once did. Because as we prepared for our new journey to Virginia, I realized I had quite a bit of, shall we call them, personal treasures. We had a whole truck full of things collected over the years that we ended up throwing away. Things that we held on to because we had plans for them or because they were important to us at one point in time and it just found a place in the shed and we forgot that it was there. There were scraps of wood from projects I had completed and some wood from projects I had yet to get to. And the more I dug around, the more I found. But as we thought about life in Virginia and what we would need on this new adventure, we ended up throwing a lot of it away and leaving it behind. And I think that is true of all new adventures. At the beginning of it, there are some things that get left behind. Last week, we saw that the Gospel of Mark begins with all this energy and excitement around the new thing that God was doing through Jesus. In fact, Mark is so excited to get to the ministry part of the account of Jesus that he basically skips the whole temptation in the wilderness. He spends two verses while Matthew and Luke have extended portions. Mark is like, got to keep moving. Jesus was there, now he's not, now he's starting his ministry. And we get this summary of all that Jesus did and taught in verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus comes and he begins teaching. And everything that Jesus does from here on out reflects or has something to do with this summary statement of what Jesus was about. Every time he healed someone, every one of his teachings and parables, and the way in which Jesus conducted himself throughout the Gospel of Mark all leads us back to this, this proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And we could surely preach several sermons just on that one phrase. And we're not going to this week. We'd be here until dinner time. And nobody wants that. So Mark has laid out the basic message that Jesus preached. But the next step, the natural one for any teacher, is to go get some students. 
And so Jesus goes, and he's passing by the Sea of Galilee. And as he's walking, he calls out to two sets of brothers. Simon, we better know him as Peter, and Andrew, and then a little bit later, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And all of these men were fishermen by trade, and Jesus calls to them and says, follow me, or literally in the Greek, come after or come behind me, and I will make you to fish for people. A few things about this interaction. These people were not necessarily what you would expect a great teacher, the first people that a great teacher would call. As fishermen, they probably weren't as well educated as those Jesus could have found in the local synagogues. They were certainly more intellectual people around that Jesus could have chosen. Or Jesus could have chosen people who would understand his mission more easily. For if you read through the Gospels, it is James and John and often, probably more often than not, Peter, who just don't get it. And while it is true that being a fisherman didn't necessarily mean you were poor, after all, James and John were likely heirs to a family business. When Jesus calls them, they're bending nets with hired people. But we don't get the picture that these men were particularly well off. And if you were a traveling teacher in those days, and there were many, and that is essentially what Jesus was, fishermen might not have been the first people that you would choose to be your closest followers. Another thing to notice, as fishermen, as Kristen pointed out earlier, Jesus calls them while they are at work. Now picture yourself at school teaching, or you're in your office getting some paperwork done, or you're in a meeting with staff, or wherever your place of work is, and this random guy shows up and says, hey, come follow me, and I'm going to give you a new identity and purpose. What would be your first reaction? I can think of a lot of things that I would do, and I can guarantee you the one thing I would not is drop everything and follow. Can you imagine how that conversation with Ellie would have gone? But one of the reasons the response of the disciples is so profound is because of how unlikely it was. Nobody does this. But there was something about Jesus, something about the call, something about the new journey that he was going to lead them into, something about his message that the kingdom of God was at hand that captured their hearts, that animated their imagination and kept their attention so that they left everything to follow. Now let's take a second and explore that. He left everything behind. Family, James and John literally had their dad in the boat. And they said, we're going. We read in later in Mark 1 that Simon had a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife. They left friends that they had grown up with. They left their jobs, which was their means of taking care of the people they loved. They left behind comfortable living familiar surroundings, they left behind their dreams about what their futures would look like, predictable patterns of life, and those rhythms that were normal for them, all in the service to this call to follow Jesus into the unknown, unpredictable, uncomfortable, and unfamiliar future that Jesus would lead them into. And this leads me to a simple truth. Following Jesus means leaving some things behind. And this complete reorientation of life that happens when we follow Jesus into the wonderful, unknown, unpredictable, unfamiliar, uncomfortable future, we will inevitably have to leave some things behind. 
And as we move forward into the future that Christ is calling us into, I wonder what it is that we need to leave behind. And I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. I invite you to prayerfully consider what the answer to that question is for you. But as I've thought and considered that question this week, here are a few thoughts. One, we must leave behind spiritual apathy. The sort of dispassionate religion that keeps you coming to church because that's what you've always done or going through the motions of worship because that's what you're supposed to do or reading your Bible and scripture because you know that's what you should do, but it doesn't really enliven your spirit or connect you to God. The God in whom we read in Genesis breathed into humanity the breath of life or the Savior who out of passionate love took on flesh to deliver and die and save. For some of us, this spiritual apathy has arrived simply because we stop truly and daily seeking God. Prayer is an afterthought. Reengaging in scripture is a chore we're out of the habit of doing. And if that is you, the invitation is to reengage in those practices that connect you to Christ and to Christ's church. For we are meant to walk this journey together. And when we walk together, we can achieve a greater impact for Christ. We must leave behind anger. Anger is a tricky thing. It can arrive in so many different ways and rear its head at unexpected times and for unexpected reasons. But one thing is for sure that a heart that holds on to anger will also not be able to forgive. For at its very core, forgiveness means letting go of anger and a desire for revenge. To be sure, there are righteous things to get angry about. And when we are wronged, or when we perceive we are wronged, anger is a natural reaction. But letting anger fester and burn beneath the surface will not only hinder our own personal growth with Christ, but it also hinders where we can go together. We must also leave behind fear. Fear and a bit of anxiousness is normal at the beginning of a new journey. In fact, I can't imagine the fear and the questions the disciples would have had in the back of their minds that they needed to overcome as they continued to follow Christ. But fear can either paralyze us on the one hand, keeping us stagnant and away from where the Spirit of God is leading, if it's leading in a different direction. Or fear can force us to act in a way that is contrary to our mission. I'm reminded of a story of a man from Seattle in 2014. This man apparently had a very severe fear of spiders. And he was hanging out at his house and he noticed a spider on the wall. Now I don't know if this spider was super fast or if it was like the Goliath of all spiders, but instead of grabbing a shoe like any normal person would, he grabbed a lighter and hairspray, and he decided he was going to burn that spider to death. Predictably, you can imagine he missed the spider a lot and caught his house on fire, causing $60,000 of damage as well as some personal injuries. Thankfully, the man ended up being fine. He was secluded in a spider-free zone while the firefighters put out the fire, and it's completely unclear whether his fiery assault actually killed a spider. But fear can either paralyze us or cause us to act in some irrational ways, doing things we would never normally do. 
must leave fear behind and pick up faith and trust that where God calls, it's going to be good for us. And finally, we must ensure that our loyalties are properly ordered. We live in a world that is constantly fighting for our loyalty and our attention. And don't get me wrong, so many of those things that demand our loyalty are good and beautiful ways that we can express love for God and love for each other. But there are also things that demand our loyalty that instead of bringing us together, seek to tear us apart. And the only way we can fight against that is ensuring that our loyalties are properly ordered. Christ on top. Then family, and we can't go much further from there before we should have our church family on the list. After all, Jesus, is, Jesus said to his disciples that the world will know that you follow me if you what? If you love one another. And as we follow Jesus into the future he is calling us into, there are some things that we must leave behind. Spiritual apathy, anger and forgiveness, fear, and improperly ordered loyalties are just for you, just a few. What is it for you? Whatever it is, may we be like these four disciples, who when Jesus called eagerly and immediately left all behind, to go where Jesus would take them. After all, the time is still now. God's kingdom is still active. Jesus is still leading us to share the truth of God's love and grace as we seek to do love and walk as Christ in this world. And the call of Christ is still repent and believe. May we follow. And may we follow eagerly.